and welcome to a very spooky and scholarly episode of the Rage Podcast. I am your host, Michaela Parker, and I am not afraid to say Candyman's name five times in a mirror. If anything, Candyman afraid of me. (laughs) As I stated a few episodes ago, I am an avid fan of everything spooky, creepy, and paranormal. So with Halloween right around the corner, I wanted to do something special. Today, we will be talking to Phil Goodstein, a DU alum, and one of the most fascinating people I've ever had the privilege to sit down and talk to. Phil Goodstein is an author and Denver native who has written more than 20 volumes about the Mile High City. He explores controversies around the city while emphasizing the different hopes and perspectives of various classes and economic interests that shape the community. But rather than speaking for him, let me allow our guest to introduce himself. I'm Phil Goodstein, something of a gadfly, maybe a malcontent, maybe just generally a naysayer, a Denver native who landed up attending DU for my master's in history in the mid-1970s. From there, I proceeded on to get a PhD in useless information from the University of Colorado, and I soon found that I had no use for my PhD. Nobody was interested in any of my areas of expertise, such as the role of the general strike in European social democracy from the French Revolution to World War I, or the character of eschatology in Puritan New England. And even today, nobody wants to hear me rant and rave on the history of the Ukraine, which, believe it or not, was another of my academic areas of expertise. So I had to hustle. And among the things I've been very good at over the years is the ability to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. For example, one time I met somebody and we started talking about radio stations in town. And we were going up and down the dial talking about the merits and problems of different frequencies till we started chatting about the old KVOD classical station. And I observed that that station had a lot of problems on it. It had far too much blabbery. And most of all, it had these idiotic contests. And the person I'm talking with turns to me, she asks, do you know who I am? No, no idea. Well, I'm the contest director at KVOD. Another time I'm ranting and raving about the quality of newspapers in town. And a key qualification for getting a job with the Denver newspaper is to know absolutely nothing about the city. And somebody that overhears me say that comes up and says, you know who I am? I'm a newspaper editor. And if you think you can do a better job than my reporters, why don't you write something up? And if it's any good, I'll print it. So I took him up on that, and much to my surprise, he liked my stuff. And on that basis, I became the front page writer of a Denver Weekly newspaper in 1983 City Edition. And over the course of the next couple, three years, week in, week out, I'm delving into what makes the city tick, its traditions, its history, its scandals, its scoundrels. And at the same time I was becoming interested in Denver history, I had ties with the old Denver Free University. And I used to teach all sorts of fun classes there, such as the pedestrian as a hunted animal, or television, the one-eyed monster. So I figured why not give a lecture series called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Denver? 
And while that class was doing okay in the winter, it wasn't doing well in the summer. And this was the situation on a beautiful evening in July 1986 when nobody showed up for class one night and I got bored and I decided I'd go out for a walk. And so here I was simply walking down Colfax backwards, wildly waving my arms about, talking to myself. This is the pre-cell phone era. And people started following me around. And on that basis, I decided I might as well give walking tours of Denver. And since then, I've written uh, upwards of about 30 books on the city, have given probably walking tours of more than 50 separate neighborhoods itself. October is usually my busy time because people want to know, is it true that there are a couple of heads floating beneath the tunnels under the Capitol? And do they go upstairs sometimes and consult with the governor or the legislature explaining some of the other bizarre events at the Capitol? Or should we just be dealing with some good nitty-gritty, like where does the University of Denver fit in with corporate Denver and the local ruling class? It was such a pleasure reading about you. With your master's in history from DU, when did you begin to explore the intersects of history and the paranormal within your work? I don't know if it ever was an interest. What happens is Denver Free University collapses in 1987, early 1988. And right about that time, Colorado Free University is formed from the ruins of Denver Free University. And the one hit class of early Colorado Free University was my walking tours of the city. As Halloween approached, the director of Colorado Free University, John Hand, suggests, why don't we do some sort of ghost theme for Halloween of this itself? So I sort of came up with a proposal of haunted Halloween, not really at all sure what I was going to do in the slightest about that. And in no time, the 30-person limit on the class has filled up in no time. A second session has filled up. There's a waiting list for more out of it. So we decide we're going to rent a bus and have the bus go around town with me tell haunted stories. The problem is, is I don't know any good haunted stories of Denver. So I descend on the library. And a key problem is the literature on ghosts in Denver was sparse, almost minimal at that time itself. There would be a few newspaper articles featuring Halloween or so, but actually until the mid-1970s, Denver was more or less bereft of ghosts. And it was only with the oil boom that seemingly the ghosts started moving into Denver at that time. So what I landed up having to do was combine the history of buildings with some of the folklore that's out there. Sometimes people that were good storytellers would give me their version of what would happen. Psychics would say, oh, I have felt something in here, but trying to integrate it, for example, among the most notorious haunted houses of Denver is something called the Croke Patterson Mansion, off at the southwest corner of 11th Avenue and Pennsylvania Street. The key occupant of the place 
was Thomas Patterson, most influential, most powerful figure from the time he arrives in Denver in the early 1870s until he croaks in the mansion in 1916. He's an outstanding orator, top-notch criminal defense attorney, very successful land speculator, owner, editor, publisher of the Rocky Mountain News from the early 1890s to about 1913, United States Congressman from Colorado, United States Senator from Colorado, and people just absolutely, totally polarized over Patterson during his lifetime. After he dies, a music studio is in the place and there are disharmonic notes. But isn't there always disharmonic notes in any music studio out of it? It's a radio station. It's a dance studio. It gets converted into six large apartments where there's a bizarre suicide. It gets converted into 17 middle-income apartments, and there's strange knockings going on. And especially for young couples with small children, it's most uncomfortable because not only will the cradle rock, but the cradle will start wildly swinging and bouncing up and down. Fireplace crates will explode on that. So in the early 1970s, a hustler named Trenton Parker buys it, saying he's going to convert it into offices. However, no sooner does the construction crew start work on it than jobs that they did yesterday, they find they have to do again today. Tools move about, wires are crossed, the recently replaced windows suddenly shatter on the place itself, and the general contractor just can't find a reliable night watchman. So he fences off the house with barbed wire, he puts up notices of warning on it, and uh, leases a specially trained killer Doberman to patrol the premises after dark. Couple three days later, the crew shows up in the morning. There's broken glass in a mysterious turret of the mansion. There's the dog lying dead on the sidewalk just at the bottom of the turret where apparently some evil fiend threw or chased the dog out of the house. Eventually, three dogs die in the course of the renovation of the house. No sooner is the house finally opened as offices than typewriters turn themselves on and start clicking away. Copy machines start making documents totally unlike originals that look like scribblings from a seance. Phones light up. There's strange whispering in the house. There's a feeling that there is some mysterious old man constantly trudging between the mansion and the carriage house. So right when they're discovering ghosts in Denver, a TV station sponsors a seance at the Croke Patterson mansion. And the medium goes, check the basement. Check the basement. There are bones of a young girl in the basement. And they go down and they sound the walls to the basement. And sure enough, they find a false wall. And they break through the false wall in the boiler room 
and on the other side is sea sand, pure, white, luxurious sea sand, what you would find in Waikiki or the Riviera, totally unlike any of the sands, dirts of Colorado. They dig in it for quite a while, never find anything, can never figure out what the sand is doing in there. Meanwhile, the house goes in and out of receivership. A hot shock veterinarian, Dr. Douglas Eichert, tries to get control of it, but he's into cats, and maybe the cats and dogs are fighting to such a degree. He loses it in the Great Recession. About a decade ago, it got renovated into a haunted bed and breakfast, the Patterson Inn. And soon the innkeeper refuses to talk about ghosts, just clamps up on the subject where something had happened. And in the wake of all of this, about three, four years ago, they changed the address from 428 11th Avenue to 420 11th Avenue, where it has since become a bud and breakfast, a place specially catering to the tourist marijuana crowd. And do they need the clouds of marijuana smoke to clock the fog left by Senator Patterson? So that's kind of the stories I tell on the ghost tour. I love it. I love it. And thank you. Thank you for that because it kind of leads into my next question. As you said, you were kind of thrown into the world of haunted history. And so as a historian, what does the word haunted mean to you? Well, it can mean all sorts of things out of that. What people really want is they want Casper the ghost stories out of it. And in the course of giving the tour, I found the problem. People didn't really want to hear the history and the details about who Senator Patterson was and the massive fights he gets involved with. They want to know about the fireplace grate suddenly exploding and details like that. But are we haunted by memories of things, of past injustices that are going around on that? For example, a couple blocks from the Croke Patterson mansion is the rival of it as the most haunted house of Denver, the Whitehead Peabody Mansion at 1128 Grant Street. And Dr. William Riddick Whitehead, the guy for whom it was built, was a very wide-ranging, influential surgeon. The only problem is, is about 95% of all of his patients landed up dying from surgery under him itself. So are their disgruntled spirits part of what is haunting the house? We're back in the 19th century before antiseptic, aseptic surgery, 90 plus percent of patients every place died from surgery of that. And then meanwhile, is there perhaps the ghost of Donald Trump coming to Denver at the Whitehead Peabody Mansion? Because the next occupant is Governor James Peabody, who is a big Canyon City mine owner, banker, who is a reactionary Republican, who was governor of Colorado between 1903 and 1905. And under Governor Peabody, Colorado is convulsed by labor violence, where the governor repeatedly calls out the National Guard to crush strikes 
by mine workers against fellow mine owners like him. In the course of the upheavals of 1903-1904, hundreds of workers are killed, beaten, arrested, deported. Out of that, labor organizes. It defeats Governor Peabody for re-election in November 1904, but he claims the election was stolen, totally fraudulent out of that. And not only does he refuse to leave office, but he goes and packs the Colorado Supreme Court so now his new members of the court uphold his right to stay in office regardless of the election returns out of that itself. And the upshot is, is he's eventually run out of office in March 1905. So there could be a bunch of disgruntled voters haunting the place. Or maybe is that what happened with Donald Trump as he studied all the election fraud back of the 19th, early 20th century, and he's not been creative enough or original enough to come up with super modern fraud, and he can't even go and deal with the old ones there. But again, they have a rich lore when they had a bar, restaurant, and the Whitehead Peabody Mansion, since about 2017, they have slowly, ever so slowly, and even more slowly, been working on trying to renovate that into haunted condos out of it, and they're still not done with the project over there, so maybe the ghosts have been also been advising the construction workers over there. That's a very good point. People use the word or term haunting as a way to ruminate on the past or think of the past. But as a public policy master's student, I've taken a lot of classes pertaining to urban policy recently, where we've talked about topics like gentrification, redlining, and urban renewal. And I also recognize the research that new developments within the city, such as highways or, for example, the National Western Complex, have disrupted in many cases the black and brown communities and other marginalized communities of the area. And I wanted to ask you, what effects of these policy initiatives are still present within Denver today and potentially still impacting people within Denver? Well, from the beginning, Denver has been dominated by real estate speculators. Of that. And what is good for real estate speculators is good for the city. And that has been the policy virtually from every mayor of Denver, from John Moore in 1861, the first official mayor of the Denver, to our current inhabitant of that there. And they really don't care about people along the way. And even when they do claim to care about people, there's still problems of this. And this actually is vaguely related to a University of Denver story. A one-time chairman of the board of the University of Denver is James Quig Newton Jr., who goes on to be mayor of Denver between 1947 and 1955. His father was a big banker who claimed to be greatly concerned about the housing problem in the 1930s, and along the way, he pushed for the creation of the Denver Housing Authority in the late 1930s and serves as the first head of the housing authority of that and working with Washington. This is federal New Deal policy is part of housing projects is that for every new 
unit created by a housing authority, the housing authority has to destroy an existing unit of housing. Actually, in recent years, since Bill Clinton, it's more destroyed low-income housing than had any replacement, but that's a whole different story out of it. There of this. So anyway, what happens is what the housing authority does, it engages in slum eradication of that destroying the homes of people that had been living in the slums. But now there's a means test. Now there's a review board, other such things to sort of regiment people applying for places in public housing itself of that where in many cases they don't have an alternative to do that itself. And time and again you get this problem in terms of public policy in the name of uplift is, well, just what's called slum relocation. For example, on this, under Mayor Wellington Webb in the 1990s, there was outrage that the homeless are camping under the bridges along the Platte River and Cherry Creek. The city goes in, it puts bars under the bridges, has repeated sweeps to make sure nobody can hide out and sleep along the Platte River. And it's successful. The question is, then where do the people that had been so camping along the Platte River go? And surprise, uh, utter surprise, they show up elsewhere of that itself. For another example of urban renewal is the Skyline Urban Renewal Project that is launched in 1967 to destroy basically old Larimer Street from Cherry Creek to 20th Street of that to open it up for new corporate business building with some low-income housing as well as high-priced condos around there. Well, that section also had been the center of the red light district of Denver, so they destroy it. But do you destroy a slum? Do you destroy a red light district? Or is what happened is the people that had been in the sex business look around and they see where the biggest red light of all is shining in Denver, which is atop the dome of the state capitol on East Colfax. And soon there is this transformation of Colfax from sort of a middle income area into definitely a low class combat zone sex area itself on that. That in many ways is city planning urban renewal in the process out of it there. And again, it's time and again, it's the question of who's the winners? Who's the losers out of it? And this is a, actually an issue that doesn't get fully renovated out of that there. An example of what's going on today is there has just been an amazing redevelopment of Morrison Road out in southwest Denver from just being a traffic thick strip there, they put in boutiques, they put in special sidewalks, they put in new community facilities, whatever on that, and now the people that have been backing them are starting to complain that the gentry is moving in. But isn't having nice shopping areas and community facilities, other things, something that is 
right out designed to attract the gentry out of it and short of drastic rent control proposals proposals to put on a turnover tax on real estate speculation, something about which not only City Hall, but virtually all of the homeless advocates have been totally silent on. They just say, oh, isn't gentrification awful with no larger viewpoint? Yes, I, I definitely agree. And you talk a lot about this too in your upcoming book, actually, Schools for a New Century. And you discuss the history of the rise of public schools in Denver starting around 1859 and the relationship between the gold rush and the formation of public schools in our area and even how busing further aggravated rather than bridged the severe racial and ethnic socioeconomic gaps of the city at the time. But one point that stood out to me is your argument that schools reflect society. And in your research regarding Denver public schools, what are the reflections you see within the school that emulate our current society? Okay, a number of ones are on there. One that I start out early in the book is this claim, parents read to your children. Parents read with your children. And there are countless reading programs, especially in early childhood, first years of primary school, out of it there. Well, what happens? There's a large, an incredibly large percentage of the population that doesn't have one book in their house. The parents never read. So you expect them now to listen to the teachers and suddenly get books and read to and with their children out of there. And again, how much is that a class differentiation? Another thing that goes on with the schools is the idea indeed, yes, you need plenty of parental involvement with that. Well, a large percentage of Denver public school enrollment are of marginalized communities, including the children of undocumented aliens there, people that have very good reason to fear the authorities, people that often move quickly to escape the authorities, to escape debts, to escape landlords itself there. These people do not get involved in the schools, partly from fear, partly also from respect. And in this case, some of them have come from cultures where a school teacher is considered a very honorable, very respected person in the community. And basically, if the teacher says, do this, you're supposed to do this. They're not out there arguing or fighting, well, which curriculum on critical race theory or what other blobbery is the trend of the day should be going on with this? Well, meanwhile, what Denver Public Schools is always saying is we have choice. And choice means that a motivated student or his, her parents can always go and figure out which school is the very, very best for their child out of it and learn to play the game of choice and send their child to that school, including, if necessary, providing transportation if the school is five miles away out of it itself. How many low-income parents really play this choice game? And what the choice has landed up meaning is parents that live in a low-income neighborhood 
generally send their child to the low-income school out of it. But now the gentry can move into some of these areas and they don't have to worry about the schools thanks to choice so they can still send their child miles away. And I'll give a good example of this is there's a place called Colfax School at West Colfax and Tennyson Street. A few years back, its enrollment was surpassing 400. It had to have a portable unit to check overcrowding in it. Today, the enrollment is around 200, and Denver Public Schools is thinking of closing it because of under-enrollment. And what has happened is an immense swath of what had been low-income housing in this area, especially between about Colfax and 17th Avenue to Sloan's Lake has all been destroyed over the last 10 years or so for these very fancy, very pricey townhouse projects itself. So you don't have to worry about the schools. And it's also, this gets related to the nature of the society. And it's very interesting who was the superintendent of schools that really, really pushes choice in there, and that is Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett becomes superintendent of Denver Public Schools in 2005. He had never been in a public school in his life before that. He was a product of an elite Washington, D.C. family. He went to elite private schools in Washington, D.C. He goes on to Wesleyan, a sub-Ivy League school of which his father was once president, and he goes to Yale for his law degree. He is really pushed in as superintendent by John Hickenlooper. John Hickenlooper, who is then mayor, basically pushes Bennett into the superintendent's post. A private school boy from a sub-Ivy League school, Wesleyan, now out of that, again, minimal public school involvement out of that. The current governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, a private school boy, Ivy League product itself. Michael Johnston is another crucial leader of the state Democratic Party and something called the Piton Foundation, a private school boy, Yale Ivy League connections out of it now saving that and sort of the loyal opposition of the state Democratic Party, Andrew Romanoff a private school boy at Yale, whatever overtones with this. And these are people that grew up always having choice, always having the right to be able to choose what school to go to, have the money to go to it, overcome the obstacles. And now they're saying, oh, we're saving the lower class by letting them behave like private school boys, just like us along the way in terms of it. And see, this gets into the other thing that then is part of the fog machine on schools, which is our teachers' factory production workers. And basically, this is the argument. You can evaluate all schools based on standardized tests. 
And schools that do good get rewarded. Schools that do not do well are punished. And the key element here is the classroom teacher. And she apparently is a factory production line worker where she is given a bunch of empty heads as students and her role is filling them with the knowledge of how to take the tests out of that. So are the teachers so much better at say a place like Slavin School, the number one rated public school in Denver out of it, or Polaris, the number one charter school in Denver, or do you look at the background of these students? You have parents often have graduate degrees that work in the community out of it, where early on the students get this atmosphere of reading, do what your teacher tells you, study habits out of it there. And is that re the reason the teachers are so much better than teachers that are in a place like Hallett or Smith or Cheltenham, where there's this overwhelmingly poverty-stricken population where the teachers have to be social workers as well as instructors out of it. And again, how much of what's going on with this brain test preparation is brain-deadening out of it itself on there? The first thing that a good teacher learns at any level, be it early childhood education to a postgraduate program, is the first thing you have to do is get an idea who your students are. What is their level of knowledge? How much are they prepared? How do you help the advanced student advance even further, but not lose the student that isn't as advanced? The testing routine has no place for that. Everything is supposedly right or wrong on these rigidly designed, computer-driven tests. And what makes things even more cynical about this is you have things like the Stanley Kaplan Testing Center. Of course you know that as a good graduate student <laughs> out of it there. Anyway, Kaplan is among various test prep programs out of it where those that have money can enroll their children in these programs that not only tell them how to study, how to take notes of this, but it also tells them, well, exactly what is the educational testing service that operates the Scholastic Aptitude Test and the Graduate Record App test and all the legal tests, the medical tests, the empire of Princeton as it's sometimes called on there. And it'll tell them this is the way the tests are arranged. This is the advantage when you should guess, when you shouldn't guess. This is where you should spend so much time on making sure the answers are right. Here's where you should wait till the very end to deal with these questions itself. So is that an even playing field that some students go in well prepared to take the test versus others that have never heard of Stanley Kaplan? You bring up great points about the level of disenfranchisement within public education when it comes to these different systems. And you actually say that one of your favorite quotes is from Mark Twain, which is, in the first place, God made idiots. This was for practice. Then he made school boards. How does this quote relate back to your research regarding this book that's coming up about the Denver Public School Board? Well, basically, 
over the years, the question is who should be running the schools out of it? And from the beginning, there's been sort of this dual system in terms of it. On the one hand, you want to have the professional educator running the school system. Somebody that has been in the pits, he's been in the classroom, he's been in the administration, he knows what goes on, what the trends of education are on this. And as opposed to that, you're supposed to have the citizen control of the schools through an elected school board of this. Ideally, members of the school board will go and argue they are not elected to run the schools or like the RTD board. It's not elected to run RTD. It's to make sure that the system is well run. It has this oversight capacity there. If something is wrong, it should be the one calling the superintendent into account of why things are going wrong in terms of this. And as opposed to this view, what the school boards have been doing since the late 20th century, partly under this Wall Street fixation, is schools are a business and you, the same way you have a professional corporate executive run a business, you have a professional corporate executive run the schools. So for example, on this, do you need to have a superintendent who's a master educator, or do you have a politician like Michael Bennett named as superintendent that can always hire the appropriate experts out of that there? of that itself in, in terms of a knowledge, a background, an overview, it's fairly rare to actually have somebody on the school board that has a grasp of educational issues. In particular, what happens in Denver on this is the school board is actually highly politicized at the time of World War I. Conditions are so bad in 1917 when the five-member board is polarized two to two with the fifth member having recently died, two members will get together saying, this is the school board meeting. The other two won't show up, so there's no quorum and they can't conduct business. An hour later, the other two will show up and likewise do it. And amidst all of this, the Denver Chamber of Commerce which is something of the shadow government of Denver, decides to pack the school board in 1917 by expanding it from five to seven members and launches an all-out campaign to get its members elected to the board. And it's extremely successful out of that. And actually into the 1950s, virtually nobody that was not endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce joins the school board in Denver. In the 50s, there starts being a few creaks and problems. They especially become severe in the 1960s. And by the 1960s, the school board realizes, you know what? The civil rights movement is underway. And we do have a severe racial problem in Denver public schools. And at this time, the longtime superintendent of Denver Public Schools is Kenneth K. Oberholzer. He took office in 1947. 
He is a master administrator. He knows what is going on in the schools. He also is an excellent politician, constantly mingling with PTAs, community activists. He just has a soaring press reputation, but on certain issues, he's amazingly blind. And could it be that he is amazingly blind because he lands up graduating from high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1920, a year before among the very worst race riots ever in American history. From Tulsa, he lands up in Houston, he lands up in small town Texas as a teacher, principal, superintendent, and never has the slightest problem with Jim Crow. And when he comes to Denver and you start getting a civil rights upheavals and a massive explosion of the black population in the city by the time of World War II, he deliberately acts to make sure that some schools are for whites, some schools are for blacks. That totally polarizes the community leading to a school board election in 1969 where the incumbents are for a rather milquetoast busing program in the name of equal educational opportunity based on the premise that integrated education is automatically better than segregated education. They are opposed by the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party of 1969 vintage, led by Jim Perrell, who's a Republican Party operative that says, aha, we have an issue, we can drive the Democrats from office, and he does an, a marvelous job of polarizing the community, and he and his fellow anti-busing candidate, Frank Southworth, land up winning the election the very first thing they do when the new school board meets is to revoke what is called the Gilbert's Plan, the busing integration program. Advocates of busing in turn immediately turn to the United States courts claiming that this is an unconstitutional, illegal infringement on the right to equal educational opportunity. The courts agree with them, leading to busing that has all sorts of consequences the advocates never conceived of in that. Now, meanwhile, in the generation after busing, a lot of people have been questioning this issue. Is integrated education automatically better than segregated education. And for example, just within the last week or so, the school board has granted a charter to something, I think it's called the 5280 Freedom School, which is designed basically as a school for black children only out of that there. But at the same time, the school district is also saying, we have to have some way of getting these low-income children with the problematic parental involvement into these fancy good white schools with the implication that there is a magic. And what's going to happen if you take a badly prepared student and you suddenly plunk them into a high-performing school? Yeah. And again, what happens in the busing era is typical of this. For years, 
At places like East and George Washington, the two top academic high schools of the 1960s, the teachers of advanced placement courses basically told the students from the beginning, you are doing college level work in here. Either you do the work or you are going to fail and get out of here. But the classes are exclusive. And a lot of people don't think that that's fair, that everybody should have open enrollment to get in there. So sometimes students that have no grasp of basic algebra are sent into calculus advanced placement courses and they fail. Is that because of racism? Or would the teacher have failed them regardless of what the race is? Now that itself. So it's issues like that that are all out there. And it's always the issue I raise in terms of equal opportunity versus special skills of this year is here you have somebody, he is totally clumsy, he's 120 pounds, he's five foot four, and wants to play on the football team. And does the coach have to say, sorry, you just don't have what it takes to be on the football team? And how different is that in terms of academic excellence or how much academic excellence is simply being able to know what echo what your teachers are saying, where sometimes the most stupid students in schools are straight A students. And the reason I say that is they know how to polish apples, they know how to do absolutely everything they are told, and don't have the slightest idea that there's another world out there besides that. Right, right. And I want to shift a little bit because I actually love doing research on your books because um, in one of your other recent published books, The Denver That Is No More, the story of the city's demolished landmarks, you illustrate the ever-changing city, which is Denver. And as a native to the city, what is one of the most shocking untold or forgotten histories that you have learned about the city? Oh, the one I'm still dealing with on this is Denver was once the nation's foremost radical trade union center. There was a thriving socialist movement opposition that is systematically destroyed in the series of labor upheavals, repression between about 1900 and 1920. For a while, there's actually quite an interesting communist movement in Denver. Again, thoroughly whitewashed out of the history of the city out of that there. And there are so few documents that are left behind in terms of things like this. Very few of the local socialist communist publications details there, but those are movements itself on that. But actually, in terms of some of the landmark structures, this gets back into the issue of gentrification and untold consequences of improvement plans in there. And some of the photos that are in the Denver that is no more are very contemporary photos that I shot probably over the course of the last 10 years or so, including some fairly simple frame houses that have been destroyed. And what does that say about the class diversity, the different income levels within the community where whenever you look at one of these architectural proposals, 
do these architects with their never, never land scenarios ever realize that there's anybody but the affluent and the middle class around their places? A current example of this is they are rebuilding the 16th Street Mall. And you look at their pictures of this glowing images of what the rebuilt 16th Street Mall is. Where are the young? Where are the poor? Where are the homeless there? Or are they going to do some sort of gates around there saying, like, this is a private shopping mall, get out of here. And actually, they've been trying that in downtown in recent years. There's a lot of plazas around the high rises downtown. And the plazas were deliberately encouraged by the city and zoning laws of this because if a developer put in a plaza, they got a bonus that instead of being able to build 14 stories, now, oh, wait, they can build 18 or 28 stories or whatever. And these were to be public places. And to keep people from sitting on the ledges of their planters, they put spikes on virtually all of the ledges downtown out of that. So that's, again, the kind of things that are part of the Denver that is no more than back in the 1980s when the mall first opens. The private government of downtown, the downtown partnership, is saying, oh, we're proud to have all these plazas. This shows what a lively central business district is all about. I love that point because whenever I think of the creation of anything, I always remember it's political, whether it's a park, a school, yeah. a parking lot, it's very political. And so I know that you're a book lover and I'm a book lover as well. And I actually read a report through The Guardian that states that there is a rapid acceleration of book censorship occurring across the U.S with more than 2,500 different books being banned over the past year in different schools, with a total of 1,648 individual titles, many of them mentioning issues related to race and sexuality, were subject to bans in over 32 different states in the last year as well. So I wanted to ask, because you talked a little bit about it too with families and reading and the importance of books being a part of a child's development, I wanted to ask how do you think policies like this will impact my generation and the next and future generations of readers? Well, this could be another part of the private school conspiracy there, where often what choice is all about, it's not choice for the wealthy. They already have the choice. The choice is geared at sort of the upper middle class, people that are right on the fringes. They have the choice of sending their children to public schools or private schools. Yes, private schools might be a little pricey and whatever. Well, where am I going to send my child? To a school that actually has teachers that are willing and able to discuss issues of this or a teacher that is going to be totally frightened by the book burners out of there that don't want any controversy. And see, this in fact might get back into the testing routine. Maybe if we have a heavy enough testing routine, we don't have to worry about outside sensors because there are the inside sensors of this because what teachers are expected to do is to teach to the test out of that in there. And since that's what teachers are preparing for on this, 
that we don't care about critical race theory or is it nurture or nature in terms of sexuality. We just want to know what is on the desk out of there. Don't think, don't worry about alternative resources. And maybe what is far worse than these outside book burners and banners is what's been going on from within. And a special problem has been libraries and the way libraries have been dissectioning books in the internet era is criminal out of it itself there in the sense that they get rid of it. Go look on the internet in terms of it with the idea being, no, I want to know what were they thinking in the 1930s in terms of the views out of there, including what were the encyclopedias and the so-called wise men saying at that period itself. And every time I say, no, let's go to the modern internet, I keep thinking of George Orwell in 1984. And part of what goes on in 1984 is they keep reproducing yesterday's newspaper. Because a year ago, Big Brother might have said, we are going to do this and increase the chocolate ration. And now the chocolate ration has been cut, so you redo the story to say, Big Brother a year ago predicted we're going to have hard times and reduce that. And if you're patriotic, you're going to celebrate this itself. So it's that kind of censorship that is, I think, far more ominous than these outsider, busybody ignoramuses who over the years have decided, well, Charles Darwin has a little problem. The Bible says this and Darwin disagrees, so let's get rid of that here or whatever. And these people that don't know anything about physics going to tell you, about teaching physics and the, all the problems there and is there rights and wrongs in physics or how much of advanced physics the you know, leading experts realize we can sort of guess at this but we really don't know in that open-mindedness compared to right or wrong learn to take the test and if you don't learn to take the test you're a dullard and we don't want you and so go ahead, be bored, get dropped out of our very rotten system because that gets back to the school and society. Insofar as society is screwed up and divided, is it surprising that the schools are? Mm, that's, that's a great point that you leave us on. And I really just want to end with one more question. How can we continue to advocate for freedom of expression while supporting authors like yourself? Hmm. You can buy my books. How's that? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that, that, that's the keynote in terms of it. So that, that was supposed to be the promise of the internet. It's that multiple perspectives would be available. That if you don't like the, what you read in the newspaper, go out and establish your own newspaper. Ha, 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 ha. I do my little bit on that as I put out a two-page week monthly newsletter called The Naysayer, giving a totally different perspective on city developments itself on that. But it's the ability to go and say, hey, wait a minute on this here of this question, challenge. Don't believe what you hear coming out of a box. Right. 
I love that. Thank you so much for spending the afternoon talking with me. Is there anything before we leave that you would like to share with our audience? Well, I don't have a website of my own. There are a couple of websites, loveandlearndenver.com, that includes my tours on it. Also, a real estate firm, leonardleonard.com, on its website features my tours and books. CapitalHillBooks.com sort of is my main book dealer in terms of listing, and that's the best place in town to get virtually all of my books that are in print. Perfect. Well, thank you again for spending the time talking to me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.